Good morning. Uh, this morning's scripture is from 1 Samuel 18, 6 through 16. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs, and with tambourines and lutes. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the harp as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had left Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. And David led troops in their campaigns. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Mindy. Uh, pray with me, if you would. Oh, Lord God, help us to turn our hearts to you and to hear what you will speak. For you speak peace through your people, to your people through Christ our Lord. So speak peace to us today through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, if that uh, scripture reading, reading sounded familiar, it's because it is. Two or three weeks ago, I preached from the exact same passage. We are thinking about the seven deadly sins this Lent season as we lead up to Easter. Uh, there's nothing, there's no, there's no biblical category in the Bible that says that there are seven deadly sins, and these seven are, are deadly, and the others are not so bad. Uh, but it's a helpful structure. It's an artificial structure, but it's helpful because uh, it, it kind of forces us or it encourages us to think about sin in a systematic and a methodical way, not because we want to guilt ourselves. Uh, Lent is a, is a season, a journey to the cross, so to speak, and it was at the cross that Jesus Christ forgives not only our own individual sins, but the sin of the world. So the more we think about and meditate on sin, the deeper an appreciation we will have for the mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus. This morning, uh, we're thinking about the, the sixth of the seven that we're looking at. We're thinking about, um, well, all the lists call it something a little bit different. Some call it anger. Some call it rage. Some call it, a lot call it wrath, which is a good, that's a beefy word. Uh, you might call it, you might think of vengeance. There are all sorts of words, but you kind of get the idea uh, that we're talking about. And we don't really have time to... to to peel away and define everything really, really, really precisely. I wish we did. But, um, but we're going to think about it kind of from, from two different standpoints. And I'm going to use, these aren't precise like scientific terms, uh, but just so you know how I'm using the terms this morning, we're going to think about anger as an internal emotion, a feeling or a response to certain events. And then we're going to think about it as, as a response so there's the feeling, and then there's the response. And the response can be either internal or external. Externally, we might call it rage or, or wrath. This is the, you know, face red, sweaty palms, hands shaking, like, 
almost losing control of your body response to anger. But more often, and I think for most of us, when we think about rage or wrath, we might consider that it's not always that manifest externally. In fact, it's often a lot more internal. Most of us, I think, probably don't fly off the handle at the drop of a hat. But I wager that every one of us has moments of internal rage or seething or whatever you want to call it. You know those times that you have the conversation with somebody in your, mi- in your mind and you just tell them off and it feels so good. Or it could be before or it could be after. You know, you had a conversation and then, then it's the, I should have said that. I wish I had said that. But we're trying to distinguish, in other words, between the, the feeling, like the immediate response, and then the expression. What do we do with it? By and large, as best as I can, I'm going to use anger to describe the feeling, and then I'm going to use words like rage or wrath or vengeance to describe the response or the expression of it. And you'll see why in a little bit. Now, I'll say this um, at the outset. This is important to note as well. Like it, would be, it could be easy to come away from this thinking, okay, so if we define things this way and anger this way and wrath that way, then, then I'm off the hook. Because we always find ways to justify ourselves, don't we? Uh, that's, not, that's not the goal <laughs> this morning or ever. The, the goal is not to manipulate definitions in such a way that we justify ourselves, but it's to take our, our sin to the cross and to hear Jesus say from the cross, I forgive you. And in fact, when we observe the Lord's Supper later on and confess our sin together, uh, you will hear, you'll hear that. You'll hear me say that. Not that I'm Jesus, but, but as Christians, all of us are able to express the forgiveness of Christ to one another. One last little introductory note. It may be true. It's just as I've reflected on this list of seven deadly sins that anger may be the one that we all have in common more than any of the others. In fact, we probably, if you're anything like me, like you have days, days, maybe more, weeks, months, where you feel this internal anger and you don't even know why. What's going on there? Now, psychologists tell us that anger is a, what they call a secondary emotion. It's not a primary emotion, it's secondary. What they mean by that, and I'm painting in pretty broad brushstrokes, is that, um, that anger is almost more of a response to something else than an emotion in itself. So it's a response to a deeper, primary, first-level emotion. It can be a response to any number. The three most common, that if, if you read... Um, literature about anger, the three that you come across over and over and over again are fear, hurt, and guilt. We most often feel anger in response to deeper feelings of fear, hurt, or guilt. So imagine uh, you're supposed to get together with somebody, with a friend, or maybe it's a business meeting and you get stood up. And the person doesn't even bother to call you and say, I can't make it. It's just you're there, and then it's 15 minutes later, and then it's 30 minutes later, and, and you get angry, right? It's it's not necessarily wrong to feel angry at that, but why are you feeling angry? Well, in effect, what that person said was this other thing I had to do was more important than getting together with you and and more important than even telling you, hey, I'm so sorry, I can't make it. You feel hurt. And your anger is an expression of your hurt. You see how it's it's an expression of something that's deeper. 
Um, imagine, here's a just hypothetical, I don't think this has happened to any of you, <laughs> I hope not. Uh, your kid, you have a kid in college and your kid calls you and says, uh, Mom, Dad, uh, I've decided at the end of this semester I'm going to drop out of school and I'm going to buy a van with my friends and we're just going to travel the country. And you get, what, you get angry. You would, I, I assume, you would get, I would get angry, I think. Uh, and again, probably rightfully so, but why? Why? Well, there might be some hurt, right? You've, ex you've invested time in parenting them and e energy and probably a lot of money in their college education and they're just, they're just saying, you know, I don't care about all this stuff you've invested. I would imagine there's also fear behind that. You worry for them. Like any good parent worries for their kid. You worry for their safety. You worry for their long-term benefit. What are you doing throwing away this education that will serve you for the rest of your life just to go on a road trip with your friends? Like, but it's, it's worry, it's fear. You fear, you fear that they, they might miss out on opportunities later in life because they dropped out of school. See, your anger is an expression of fear in that case and other things. One last example, this happened to me. I remember um, probably the most explosive rage that anybody's ever expressed towards me was uh, about two years ago in the summertime. We get, uh, we're at church and we get a lot of phone calls and people calling us and asking for help with whatever. So we got a request, uh, somebody needed help with rent, somebody in town. And, you know, we have kind of a process and we do our due diligence and research. And in, in looking more into it, I realized this, um, this wasn't somebody who even lived in Portsmouth, uh, but they were trying to scam us out of a few hundred dollars, saying that they were in town and they needed, needed rent money. And I found out, so I called the person and I told them, like I'd figured out this was, and I've, I've never had somebody yell over the phone so loudly at me. I mean, just absolutely explosive rage. Why? Well, because she realized I, I caught her. She was guilty. I, I, I mean, I don't know exactly, but it, right? It makes sense. She was, and she was caught, and so the only possible response was to just let me uh, have it. <laughs> See? Anger is typically, it's a secondary, it's a response to something that's going on deeper. Which means that when we think about anger, we have to think about what's going on at a deeper level. And it means that anger may not always be wrong. In fact, the authors of the Bible tell us that anger is not always wrong. Now, we could spend a whole sermon talking about righteous anger and what does righteous anger look like. Let me give you just a snippet. If you're angry because of an injustice, specifically an injustice that's being done to somebody else, you ought to be angry. If you see somebody being treated differently because of the color of their skin or because they're a woman or because they have a disability or because they're somehow so to speak, weaker, like you ought to be angry at that. If you see a nuclear superpower invading a smaller country in a blatant land grab, you ought to be angry at that. Why? Why? Injustice ought to make us angry because injustice makes God angry. God hates injustice. He made everyone in his image. That's, that's chapter one, page one of the Bible, that every single person has been made in the image of God. And he has made everyone to reflect his image. So when, when, some, when person A treats person B unjustly, 
it becomes an indignity, not just against person B, but against the image of God itself in that person. Which, if you take it one step further, is very sobering, because that means however you or I treat people, that's how we are treating the image of God. Every single interaction we have with somebody is, in effect, an interaction with the image of God. Remember when Jesus says, he's talking to his disciples, and he says, whatever you do for the least of these, for the poor, for the hungry, for the imprisoned, for the widows, you do for me. That's what Jesus is getting at in that moment. So it's possible to be angry and to be very justified, to be righteous in your angry, in, in your anger. In fact, there, uh, uh, Psalm 4, and then Paul quotes it again in Ephesians 4, it says, be angry and do not sin. Or in your anger, do not sin. It's possible to be angry and be very justified. It is also possible to be angry and not be justified in our anger. And the funny thing is, this is just kind of a casual observation, but I think it's probably true, if we're honest with ourselves. Don't we always assume that our anger is righteous anger? Like we're, I'm quick to see the injustice or the unrighteousness in somebody else's anger. But when I'm angry, it's always righteous anger. I don't know about you, but for me, right? So how do we deal with that? How do we deal with that? And when is anger unjustified? If you, if you need, if you absolutely need a rule of thumb, this is way too big a topic to, to speak comprehensively about. So we're kind of dealing in rules of thumb this morning. But if you're looking for a rule of thumb to determine when is anger appropriate or when is it not, you might ask something like this. Why am I angry? Or better yet, for whose sake am I angry? For whose sake am I angry? Am I angry because somebody else is suffering an injustice? Or am I angry because I am hurt or afraid or guilty? This is, this is what we see in Saul. In Saul, it's, it's, it's really kind of unfortunate. We've, I've preached from the story of Saul like three or four times in this series. He's been a really good anti-hero, uh, so to speak. Why is Saul angry in 1 Samuel 18? Well, it starts, it starts like this. That David came back from defeating the Philistine, that's Goliath, remember, remember David and Goliath? The people come out, and, and the women sing and dance, and they sing this song. David, Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands, and Saul was very angry. That's his first response. Why is he angry? His power is being threatened. His legacy, his reputation, his position are being threatened. And the women, isn't it interesting that it says the women were singing, so there's something in Saul's motivation there maybe. The women seem to like David better than they like Saul. And he becomes enraged. What's left for him but the kingdom? I mean, he sees the writing on the wall. He sees where things are going. So enraged, I mean, he literally tries to spear David to death twice. That's what it, when it says he tried to pin him to the wall. He literally tried to spear him to the wall twice. And when that doesn't work and David gets away, uh, Saul gets a little more conniving, kind of tries to come through the back door, and he makes David a general. And he sends him to the thick of the battle, hoping that, that you know, the enemy forces will dispatch him since Saul himself couldn't. But it's worth asking, what's going on in Saul's mind? Look at verse 12. 
And then look at verse 15. If you have your Bible open or it's in your program, what does it say? Saul was afraid of David. You see? Saul's anger is a secondary expression of the primary. In that case, it's his fear. He's afraid of David. Saul isn't angry at some vague injustice or something wrong being done to somebody less powerful. Saul is just jealous for his own good. His own power is threatened. His own reputation is threatened. And Saul becomes, as it were, a slave to his anger. There was a, a British church leader in the 1800s, the very late 1800s. His name is, was Henry Edward Manning. And here's what he wrote, just very short but very pithy. He says, angry people are slaves to themselves. Angry people are slaves to themselves. It's worth asking, I mean, who would willingly make themselves a slave? Like clear-headed, you've all your mental faculties, you decide, you know what I really want? I want to be a slave to something or to someone or nobody. And yet, what Manning points out and what the scripture is showing us and what God tells us is that when we indulge our anger, we enslave ourselves to ourselves. I mean, it feels good for a little bit, doesn't it? Whether, whether that means you're venting your anger or whether you're just, you're just having that conversation over and over in your mind. But, but for starters, that doesn't make you less angry. Like, we tend to think that venting our anger is kind of like, like you've blown up a balloon and you, you, you kind of release it and the pressure reduces as the air escapes the balloon. But it doesn't work that way, does it? I think we all know from experience venting or expressing our anger, it's, it's more like, like the motor, the engine in your car. And the more you vent it, the more you open the throttle, the more gas comes into the engine and the more powerful it becomes. Venting our anger doesn't make us less angry, it often makes us more angry. We become enslaved to ourselves. And it builds and builds and builds. And not only that, you become a slave not only to your own anger, but you become a slave to the person you're angry at. Because what are you thinking about all this time? Them. And how mad you are at them, and how could they, and they said, and they did, and all of a sudden your whole mind is dominated by thoughts of them. That's slavery. You can't escape. The very thing we think will help us, will set us free, actually ends up enslaving us. You only make things worse for yourself. So how do we escape? How do we escape? In Matthew 5, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, one of Jesus' very famous, most famous teachings, he's a line where he says this. He talks a lot about anger, and there's actually a quote that Jesus says about anger on the um, front page of your program. You can read it afterwards. But then Jesus finishes and says, Love your enemies. Love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. It's just as shocking today as it was 2,000 years ago. Especially in an era of cancel culture and in an era where, where we, we may not express our anger person to person, but we're very quick to express it behind a screen, pecking away at a keyboard. How shocking and how revolutionary is it to hear Jesus say, love your enemies. Love the people on the other side of the aisle from you. 
Pray for those who persecute you. Paul develops the idea even further in Romans 12. Uh, Here's just a few verses from Romans 12. Here's what he writes. This will sound familiar. Bless those who persecute you. Do not curse them. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, seek to live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But on the contrary, this is still Romans 12. This is just Bible. This isn't Pastor Chris. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, this is the best part, you'll heap burning coals on his head. <laughs> so you have this, you have this uh, ju- imagine, you have this justified anger. Say somebody, I don't know, somebody cheated you out of money or time or whatever. And on the other hand, you have Jesus saying, love your enemies. How do we, how do we reconcile? How do we deal with that? There's a, there's a serious tension between those two. Even, and especially, even if your anger is justified, how do we deal with it? This may be where we see our Christ-likeness, or not, most clearly. Um, I've, I've mentioned throughout this series that uh, in the traditional list of the seven deadly sins, uh, there also is a corresponding list of seven kind of cardinal virtues or seven heavenly virtues. And most often what you see, uh, the virtue that counterbalances anger is patience. But an older English translation of that word might be better. I don't know if you've heard the phrase or the term long-suffering. You see this in, in like very old Puritans. They didn't write so much about patience but about long-suffering. It basically means the same thing, but the the term itself is more vivid, vivid enough that I think it might be a better phrase to use. That a response to anger is something like long-suffering. Now, the word Christian literally means it's like a little Christ. If you're a Christian, you're kind of like a little Christ. Don't take that too far, but you get the idea. How did Christ respond when he suffered? This is not, by the way, I've, I've got to say this, um, this is not a justification to enable abuse, okay? Any sort of abuse is always wrong, and it's always sinful, and it's always heinous. And so, so do not, I'm not saying, like, if you're, if you're being abused, stick it out. That's not what, in fact, if you're being abused, get out and get help, okay? But we're not talking, that's its own sermon, and we don't, I'm not talking about that. But when Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you and bless those who curse you, what does he mean? Here's what you begin to realize, and it doesn't take long to get to this point. I think we've probably all experienced it, that it's, it's quite literally impossible. Like none of us, not you, not me, not anybody in this world has a heart that naturally bends towards loving our enemies and blessing those who curse us. It, it literally takes a miracle. A miracle. A divine act of God. That somehow, the only way that it's even possible to approach this is, is to ask God for a miracle. 
Like, God, I can't. I don't have the strength to bear this. And I'm so hot right now. And I'm so seething mad at such and such a person, right? God, this person deserves X. Whatever. Help, help me to love them, because I can't. I can't. You, simply put, this is just an observation. You will not love your enemies and bless those who curse you if you are not filled with the Holy Spirit. It just does not work. I've said this, uh, I think, every sermon in this series very intentionally, and I'll say it again. Like you, So often we think that, that the way to become a Christian is to just be moral. Or better yet, the definition of a Christian is somebody who's moral. So think about that in the context of rage. That means you just a, a Christian is just somebody who avoids rage. But it's not possible. And it's not true. And scripture is very clear. You don't become a Christian by just being virtuous enough. No, your virtue comes from being a Christian. You don't, I'll say that again, because this is real. like, if you don't get this, you don't understand Christianity, okay? You do not become a Christian because you're virtuous enough. Your virtue comes because you are a Christian, which means that being a Christian must have a deeper source than just what you do or don't do. You see? On your own, the best you can hope for is to stuff your rage and your anger down deep enough, but eventually what happens? We all know the illustration. You shake the soda bottle and it explodes. Only Christ in you. Only Christ in you. Only, have I said that enough? Only Christ in you can develop the patience and the long-suffering very slowly, I might add. It's always slower than we wish it were. The only way to deal with rage is to take it to Jesus, is to take it to the cross. Lord Jesus Christ, have, have mercy on me, a sinner. I'm feeling so angry towards so-and-so. Help me. Help me. Why is that the case? Let me just offer two reasons, and this will take us uh, to the Lord's Supper, in fact. Uh, one is a little more abstract and, and heady for those of you who like abstractions, and one is very personal for those of you who like things that are very kind of practical. First, the, the more abstract. Um, why, why do we not show wrath or rage, rage or vengeance? Uh, because vengeance belongs to one person, one person alone, and that's God. Wrath belongs to one person and to one person alone, and that's God. Now that raises eyebrows in its own way, because now we're talking about the wrath of God, and how are you going to deal with that, Chris? We don't like to think about the wrath of God. It's not comfortable or pleasant, I know. But it's important to Jesus, and so it ought to be important to us. Jesus says in John 3, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. So much for the, the wrathful God of the Old Testament and the only merciful Jesus of the New Testament, huh? Now, the wrath of God is not to say that God is capricious or vindictive. He's not. It is simply to say that if, if we don't confront the wrath of God, we don't know God, not fully. The wrath of God is simply his final judgment against sin. 
It's when God completely removes his presence. And if God is the author of joy and hope and life, then the wrath of God is the complete absence of joy and hope and life. We think the wrath of God and we think like flaming chariots and lightning bolts. Um, it's, it's not. It's much, much worse. It's the absolute darkness and despondency and despair and emptiness of a world without God, without life, without meaning, and without hope. If you've experienced a severe depression, that's about as close as we feel. God's wrath is not arbitrary. It's not uncontrolled. It's not random. Scripture actually indicates that God doesn't want to demonstrate wrath to anybody. In Ezekiel, this, this line stopped me dead in my tracks when I first like, noticed it last year. Ezekiel uh, 33, I think, uh, he says, God does not desire even the death of the wicked. Now, I expected to read, God does not desire the death of the righteous, which is also true. But God does not desire the death of the wicked. God doesn't want to show wrath to anybody. He longs to show mercy. He longs to show mercy. There comes a point, C.S. Lewis put it so well, he says, at the end of the day, there are two kinds of people. There are people who say to God, thy will be done, and there are people to whom God says, thy will be done. In other words, God gives us what we ask for. If you spend your whole life turning from God and rejecting God and insisting that you want no part of him, finally, eventually, he will give you what you've been asking for all your life. In Romans, Paul says, he puts it this way, he says, we make ourselves enemies of God. It's important to note that he does not say God makes himself an enemy of us. We make ourselves enemies of God. What does this have to do with our anger? Believe it or not, they're connected. How? Think back to Romans 12. Paul puts it so simply and clearly. Do not take revenge, my dear friends. We might paraphrase. Don't, don't give in to your rage, but leave room for God's wrath. Why? Because vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. If God will repay, then how futile and how misguided are our efforts at repayment? You see? If vengeance belongs to the Lord, then it does not belong to you or to me. Simply put. Now you might still be thinking, but Chris, I get, I get so angry. Like, how do I overcome that? This is the, this is, that was more abstract. This is a little more immediate. Look to the cross. Look to the cross. Lent is a season. It's a journey towards the cross. In the, cross, in the cross, as it turns out, we find the fix, the solution, the, the absolution of our wrath. How so? Jesus is the one person in history, the one human, whose wrath was completely justified, whose anger would have been completely justified. He ne- think about it. Jesus never sinned. He never erred. He never made a mistake. He never did a single thing wrong. And what happened? He was beaten to a bloody pulp and left to hang. It's the one time that a consequence has not been in any way deserved. 
Or put it this way, the crucifixion of Jesus is the most unjust act that has ever occurred in history. Ever. Nothing more unjust has ever occurred. And how did Jesus respond in that moment? Do you remember what he said? Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Not only that, but on the cross, as Jesus hung, he experienced the full wrath of God. Remember, what is God's wrath? It's the complete absence of God's presence. And what did Jesus, what else did Jesus say on the cross? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why hast thou abandoned me? Why hast thou deserted me? On the cross, you see, on the cross, Jesus suffered the greatest injustice in all of history, and he suffered the complete, full brunt wrath of God his Father. Why? Out of love. Out of pure love. Jesus bore the injustice of humans, and he bore the wrath of God so that you and I don't have to. Because he loves you, and he loves me so much that he could not bear the thought of God pouring out his wrath, of God withdrawing from you or from me. And he said, instead of God, Father, instead of you pulling away your presence from them, pull it away from me instead. I'll go in their place. And in an act of pure love, Jesus endured the full wrath of God so that you and I would never have to bear that burden. We have, we, you and I, have escaped the wrath of God. (laughs) You realize that? We have escaped slavery to sin and to anger and to fear. So why do we insist on returning to those things like a dog returns to its own vomit. And lastly, if God's wrath is settled on the cross, then where is there room for your wrath or my wrath? There isn't. It's been, it's been settled. It's been paid. That debt has been canceled. You see, so for a, for a Christian, for a Christian, there is no room for the wrath, for our wrath. There's no room for rage. There's no room for outbursts of anger. Why? Because God has settled those things. Vengeance is mine. God has satisfied his wrath on himself, on his own son, so that you and I might be set free from the slavery of rage. Let's pray together. Lord, set us free. We know you have objectively set us free, and yet subjectively in our own lives we forget. We forget and we go back to our own way over and over. So forgive us our sin set us free. Help us to see that in the cross and because of the cross, there is no need for wrath or anger or rage, only love. We trust you to enact your justice. Help us to trust you more every day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.